Well, one of the things that I've noticed about people over the years is that people seem to be almost completely unable to leave things alone. It doesn't matter how good it is or how well it serves its intended purpose. If they can, they're going to monkey with it. They're not going to leave it alone. I read a, uh, a story uh, several years ago about a, uh, an engineer in the early days of World War II. He had come up with a design for something that he thought was going to be a real improvement, and it was going to help the war effort. So he, he got all of his stuff together, and he submitted it to the government, <coughs> and the first guy in the chain said, yeah, I think that would be a really good thing, but I think maybe we ought to add this to it. So he made a note, and he sent it back down. The guy looked at it and said, well, I don't really see where this is going to be an improvement, but that's what he said. So he incorporates this, sends it back up. The next guy in the chain says, well, yeah, that would be a really good thing if we changed this, and he sends it back down. And it just continues to go like this. And what had originally been a fairly small pack of paper ended up to be something just really huge. One guy couldn't hardly carry it. And at the end of World War II, it had still not made its way all the way through the process. And they finally said, well, throw this mountain of paper away because nobody's going to use it now, even if they could. Everybody had to mess with it. And people do that a lot of the time. And one of the, you know, you can mess with some things. <clears throat> some things can stand a little bit of improvement. Some things could be a little different one way or another. But one of the things that is, is really uh, a bother to me and sort of puzzling in a way is why so many people want to meddle with things that God designed. Now, if you're, if you're meddling with things that people designed, yeah, maybe, maybe they didn't do the best job they possibly could have. But by definition, if God is the one who says this is the way it ought to be, then that is the perfect way it should be. And people won't leave it alone. And I thought for the next uh, little bit, we might look at some ways in which people have, have meddled with things that God has said uh, especially uh, as it refers to the organization of the church. Because if there's anything that I can think of right off the top of my head, religiously speaking, that people have meddled with more, I don't really know what it would be. Uh, but God has given us a plan. He's given us a model for the way the church is supposed to be organized, the way it's supposed to be, the things that are supposed to be done. And uh, people have meddled with all of it at one, uh, one time or another, or in one way or another. This evening, what I'd like to do is look at the preacher. Now, this is one area where people have meddled a lot. I mean, they have meddled with every possible thing that you could uh, associate with the preacher. Now, uh, one of the things is, is they, they have to change the titles. They, they have to change the words that are used to refer to this person who's going to stand in the pulpit and teach and preach from God's word. Now, you know, everybody's heard preachers referred to as reverend at one time or another. And I have heard some brethren say, well, they shouldn't refer to a, a, a preacher as reverend because the Bible says only God is reverend. Well, they have the right idea, but they're getting there the wrong way. 
you know, if you think about it, if, if we're not going to call a preacher reverend because that term is used of God, well, does that mean I can use any other term I want to? You know, if, if I say, well, we're going to refer to him as the uh, Grand High Poobah Master of all he surveys, is that going to be okay? There's nothing in the Bible about that. No, it wouldn't be okay. The, the reason that we don't refer to a, a preacher as reverend is because the Bible does not give us authority to do so. It does not say anywhere that we should call a preacher reverend or pastor for that matter. You know, every, every denominational group that, uh, that I know of will refer to a preacher as a pastor. Well, unless he is an elder, he is not the pastor. And we'll get into this a little bit uh, later on, hopefully, Lord willing. But the pastor is a shepherd. The shepherd is the leader of the sheep. And if your preacher is a pastor, how can the sheep fire him? But that happens all the time in, in denominational groups. The sheep fire the shepherd. Well, the, the preacher is not a reverend. The preacher, unless again, he's an elder, is not the pastor. He's a preacher. Over in uh, Romans chapter 10, in verse 14, this is a really good one because uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about basically the difference between Jew and Gentile uh, in God's eyes. And he says, verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? He says the person who is proclaiming the gospel to these people is preaching and is known as a preacher. Now, sometimes you'll find, like in Acts chapter 21, verse 8, uh, Philip is referred to as an evangelist, which is the same thing. An evangelist is someone who proclaims the good news. A preacher is one who preaches the gospel. Now, there was a, a time, and I don't know if this is still true or not, uh, but there was a time when in the, uh, the Church of God they made a distinction between a preacher and an evangelist. To them, the preacher was what we would refer to as a located preacher, the guy that's up there all the time. An evangelist was somebody who went around and preached in different places all the time, basically somebody who was a full-time gospel meeting preacher the way we would look at it. So they had a distinction between the two. The Bible does not make that distinction. An evangelist or a preacher, same thing. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23, and again in, in verse 25, the apostle Paul calls himself a minister. And it is proper to refer to preachers as a minister. The term minister <clears throat> simply means a servant. And that term is used of, of other people as well, uh, sometimes in the sense of a, uh, an office that somebody holds, and sometimes just in, in, in general. All of us are supposed to be ministers in one way or another. But you can call a preacher a preacher. You can call him an evangelist. You can call him a minister. Those are all biblically authorized terms to use. Now, another thing that is uh, uh, a, a bit of a, a sore spot um, I told somebody one time that one of, the, one of the real advantages to being a retired preacher 
is that I'm not getting paid anymore so I can preach on giving or paying the preacher. And if they want to fuss, they can fuss at me all they want. I'm not the one looking for a raise. But usually that's what happens. If a preacher gets in the pulpit and he starts talking about giving, they're, uh-oh, preacher's looking for a raise. And you, you, the laborer is worthy of his hire. And, uh, you know, when you look, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is a great place to go. Uh, I heard somebody one time arguing that elders should be paid, preachers should not. Now, you know, you, you might make an, an argument on one side of that, but you definitely cannot make an argument on the other side. Preachers deserve to be paid. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, almost the whole chapter, the Apostle Paul is talking about that. People are talking about him accepting money like it was a bad thing, and he says, well, look at all of these others that are accepting it. Paul chose on his own voluntarily not to take money from the uh, congregations where he was preaching at the time. He supported himself, and he also received money from other congregations, but he did not take money from the congregations where he was preaching, but that was not because that's the way God set it up. That was Paul's personal desire but in first corinthians chapter 9 especially in uh, in verse 14 you'll find it uh even so the lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel and he uses the example of the uh, priesthood under the old uh, old testament law he said what what did the uh, the priests live on the sacrifices that the people brought the, uh, uh, the, the tithes that they paid, that's what they lived off of. And he says, that, you know, that was basically just a, a foreshadowing of what was going to come. If one labors in the gospel, he deserves to be paid for laboring in the gospel. He deserves that, that right, just like anybody else would. Now, uh, I was a, uh, a church treasurer once upon a time, and we did fairly regular financial statements and one of the conversations that I've had with people on more than one occasion is they would get a financial statement and they would look where it said this is how much the preacher's getting paid and they'd say wait a minute we're paying him that much I don't get paid that much I said you're comparing apples and oranges what do you mean well when you're thinking about what you get paid what are you thinking about how much money you're going to get when you cash the check or how much is going to go into your bank account when you take it to the bank. That's what you're thinking about. That's net pay. That means that the uh, Social Security tax has been taken out, Medicare tax has been taken out. If you have a, uh, an employer uh, retirement thing, they, they uh, take money out for your 401k. Uh, you have a, uh, an employer-sponsored health insurance plan and you pay part of that, they're taking that out. So they take all of that stuff out before you see any of the money. So you're thinking you get paid this when actually you got paid a whole lot more than that. It just had to go for all these other things. Now, when you look at a, a preacher's pay on a financial statement, that's before any of that's taken out. You have to take out of what you see there Social Security, and that was a real tricky one. Anybody that, that uh, is self-employed knows this. Preachers are considered self-employed for tax purposes. 
So if, if you're working for a company, they're going to deduct 8% of your pay for Social Security. The company will also pay 8% of your pay into Social Security on your behalf. You pay 8%, they pay 8%. If you're self-employed, like preachers are, they get to pay the whole 16% right off the top. And I, I have seen some, by the time you have, have taken out the taxes and uh, the, the health insurance, you know, they're lucky if they get to take half of that home. So it's not like they're getting all of that in their pocket. They're not. You know, a lot of it has to go somewhere else. So don't, don't compare apples and oranges. Now, one of the things that you do have to be careful about, you know, even having said that, you don't pay the preacher too much. Now, I'm not going to say what too much is because I don't know. You know, everybody's circumstances are different. There are different uh, uh, reasons uh, to pay a preacher so much when somewhere else he might only get this much, something along those lines. But what I, what I am talking about is some of these places where they're paying preachers like six figures. You know, they pay a lot of money. And the, uh, the problem with that Number one is that money could probably have been better spent somewhere else. And number two, when you start paying somebody that kind of money, you are starting to build the temptation in their heart to make sure I don't do anything to rock the boat. You know, I'm making this kind of money, and if I start preaching on some things that they don't like, you know, I may have to kiss this goodbye. You know, I've got, I've got a car I've got to pay for. I've got a house I've got to pay for. Kids are about to start college. I've got to pay for all of that. I can't make these people mad. I'm making this much money, you know, and if I got kicked out, you know, how long is it going to be? How hard is it going to be for me to find another place to preach? And so, you know, you can understand how they might start thinking that way. But you can lead them into temptation that way. And, you know, Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 3 Peter said that false teachers, by covetousness, they will exploit you. And, and that is a, a, another side of the coin. King James Version says, make merchandise of you. And I actually like that better because it kind of gives you the idea of what they're doing. They're selling you for money. But you have people who will preach for the money. And if you're paying six figures, they'll preach anything you want them to. It doesn't really matter. Preachers got to have a living wage. You know, the, people used to talk about, you know, the, uh, uh, the uh, Bible colleges would keep them humble and the brethren kept them poor. And it shouldn't be that way. You know, they deserve a living wage just like anybody else. But uh, they have the right to be paid. But what exactly is their job? Now, there's another one. You're going to find some disagreement on that one. Uh, there are people, I, I have known, I have known preachers who got fired because they didn't visit enough. Visiting is not the preacher's job. It is not. Find somewhere in the New Testament where it says preachers are supposed to do your visiting for you. We have a real problem with wanting to pay other people to do our job for us. We don't want to do it. We don't want to be bothered with it. 
We don't think we have time to do it. We don't have the inclination to do it. It's a whole lot easier for me just to pay them to do it. You know, I'd a whole lot rather put a little extra money in the collection plate, tell the preacher, well, you go visit all those people. I don't have time to do that. If the preacher visits, and he should, it's because he's a Christian, not because he's the preacher. And you can't pay him to do your job for you. That's not his job. Weddings, funerals, if preachers do those, it's not because it's their job from the New Testament uh, perspective of it. It's because they're members of the congregation and they do it as a service to the members. You know, they will do those things quite often for the members of the congregation. We are all part of the same family. If you need help with something, then I'm going to help you out. But they're not doing it for the pay because if they are, they're doing it for the wrong reason. Now, uh, I will say, though, I, ha I have, uh, over the last few years, I have talked to some preachers who say they will not do weddings anymore. They don't care who it's for. It's just a blanket statement. I am not going to do them. Why? Because the, uh, uh, the marriage status of people these days is so confused that you want to make sure that, that you are participating in a scriptural marriage and you can ask them questions all you want and you still don't really know. And they say, I, I, don't, I just would rather not be involved in it at all because I don't want to be involved in, in marrying two people, legally speaking, when they have no scriptural right to be married. And, and it is, it's a, it is a confusing thing. Uh, uh, Marcia and I have been watching a uh, uh, TV show and... Uh, one of the people was saying that, that they considered this person to be family. Let's see if I can get this right. They consider him to be family because he is their father's ex-wife's ex-husband. And I, uh, how do you figure that out? I get dizzy even trying. Uh, there was a, a TV show, didn't last very long, several years ago where uh, in the opening part of it, there was a girl who was talking about uh, her parents got married and then divorced and they each married somebody else and had children and divorced and each married somebody else and divorced and so on. And she said, uh, statistics show that, you know, in the next 10 years, I'm going to be related to about 85% of the people on earth, if you could keep up with it. So I, I can't say that I blame some preachers for doing that, because uh, it, can, it can get awfully, awfully tricky out there. But those are things that they do as a service for the congregation, not because it's their job. Now, uh, there are times when a preacher is coming into a, a congregation and the elders will have an agreement and they'll say, these are the things that we expect you to do and this is how much we're gonna pay you to do them. And if they have some things like that, you know, we want you to do this, that, or the other, if he agrees to it, then he is contractually obligated to do it because he agreed to it. But as far as it being part of the New Testament uh, description of what a preacher is and is to do, uh, no, it's not. But what is a preacher to do? Well, over there in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Brother Cale read for us a little bit ago, the Apostle Paul starts out, I charge you, a charge is a solemn obligation. 
So Timothy, or, uh, Timothy is being told, you are obligated to do this, and you must do it to the best of your ability. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Can you, can you think of anything that would, that if somebody addressed something to you like this, can you think of anything that would make you think it was more serious than this? I am giving you a charge, and it's before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are standing as witnesses to this. So if you accept this mandate, you had better fulfill it to the best of your ability. But I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. That is what preachers do. They preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, when it's convenient and when it's not. It doesn't matter. Either way, you need to be ready to do it. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Convince. Now, the, uh, the King James says reprove, but basically what this is is that someone is doing something that's not exactly right, and you are trying by a, a good sound argument to convince them to change. You're trying to say, look, that's not the right way to do it. This is the right way to do it, and I'm going to give you the reasons why. So you're, you're making a sound argument. You're convincing them to change. Well, not only are you supposed to uh, reprove or convince, you rebuke. I, I have known I don't know how many times that people say, well, I don't like that preacher. He's just negative all the time. He never preaches on anything positive. Why can't he say something positive? Why can't we go home feeling good about ourselves? He's always just, you know, got sore toes everywhere, stepping on everybody's toes. Well, he does that because God told him to do it. If people are doing the wrong thing, you reprimand with authority. What you're doing is wrong, and you need to stop it. Even if you don't know that that's what they're doing, you preach it as, as a general lesson, and hope it's going to hit somebody. And, you know, you think about it. If uh, reprove is kind of a negative thing because that implies somebody's not doing exactly what they ought to do and they have to be convinced to do otherwise. Rebuke, they're definitely doing something wrong and you're going to tell them about it. And then you exhort. Two out of three are negative. So if a preacher is preaching negative two out of three times, he's fitting the biblical model. Now, I'm not going to say that they ought to do that, but... You know, people shouldn't fuss so much about preachers being negative because they're trying to help us out. I mean, that's, that's one of those things. You know, pe people talk about love when they absolutely do not know what it is. They have no idea what love is. I love my children too much to, to correct them. If you don't correct your children, you don't love them, period. And if you say that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ and you see somebody doing something they shouldn't do and you don't say, hey, uh, wait a minute. If you're not willing to point out to them that what they're doing is wrong, you don't love them. You love yourself more than you do them because you would rather them go ahead in whatever it is they're doing, whatever sin they're committing, rather than for you to feel uncomfortable because you corrected them. People don't know what the term means.
But if you love somebody, you will tell them when they're doing something wrong. Well, you know, this guy is a real good friend of mine, and, you know, we've been, we've been friends for a long time, and I wouldn't want to say anything to make him mad at me. So, you know, when he, he found that uh, gallon jug of dynamite down there in the woods, you know, I wasn't going to tell him that he shouldn't mess with that. You know, who's going to do that? Nobody, if they have a, 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 a brain at all. But you also exhort to urge by earnest appeal or argument. This is what you should do. I'm going to encourage you to do it and keep on doing it because that's what you need to do. So the preacher's job is to preach. He is to convince, to rebuke, to exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. And, and that is one of the things that, that preachers really, really need, long-suffering. Put, put yourself in, in this position. You are trying really, really hard to do a good job. And you keep doing it day in, day out. You know, weeks go by, months go by, years go by, and you really don't see that you've made any progress. You know, you'd have to think, you know, am I actually doing any good at this? Am I serving a useful purpose doing this? You know, would it matter in the least if I just quit and walked off? You know, there are a lot of preachers think that way, and you can't blame them. You know, they don't see much of a positive response from the congregation. Nobody comes out and tells them, you know, that was a really good lesson. I had not thought about that before, and you have encouraged me to make a change in my life, so I'll be a better Christian. You know, they'd love to hear something like that, but they rarely do. So they have to have the long-suffering or else they'd all get discouraged and quit. They need the long-suffering. And a little encouragement doesn't hurt either. And now one of the things that, uh, is, this is kind of one of my pet peeves. I know I've got a lot of them. Uh, but generally speaking, if you're thinking about a false teacher, you're thinking about a preacher, kind of like the ones that Peter was talking about, uh, over there in, in 2 Peter 3 or 2 Peter 2, the ones that are going to make merchandise of you, you think about a, a false teacher in that sense, and generally speaking, what you're going to think of is he's somebody who gets up there and he preaches falsehood. He is actively teaching and preaching false doctrine. And yes, that is a false teacher. But there are probably more false teachers who are false teachers because they're false to the charge that God has given to preachers. It's not because of what they say, it's because of what they don't say. You can have somebody who can, and they can preach for 30 or 40 years and never one time say anything that was wrong and still be a false teacher because they didn't tell you everything you needed to know. Over in uh, Acts chapter 20, and this is someplace we'll, we'll uh, be back later uh, dealing with elders, but in, in Acts chapter 20, Paul is, is on a trip back to Jerusalem, and he stops in Miletus. He calls for the Ephesian elders, and they come to him, and, and he tells them, you know, some of the things that he had done while he was there with them. Uh, but in verse 20, he says, how I kept 
back nothing that was helpful. I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. I didn't leave anything out. I told you everything that you needed to know. Now, a little later, in verse 26, he says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. He said, nobody can blame me for what happens to him. I am innocent of the blood of all men. How can he say that? Verse 27, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He told them everything, whether they liked it or not, whether they were going to fire him or not. It didn't matter. This is something that he had to do. Nobody could come back later and say, well, wait a second, you never told me that. You know, why didn't you tell me that? I, th I thought everything was fine. You know, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, I, I am convinced is, is a very accurate account of the way things are going to go at the judgment. There are a lot of people out there, and you probably know a whole bunch of them, that are absolutely convinced that as far as their relationship to God, they're fine. Everything's great. I don't have any problems at all. And then come the judgment, they're going to say, you know, wait a minute. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did many wonderful works in your name. How can we be lost? Because you never belonged to me. I never knew you. These are people that are going to be absolutely convinced that they're right and they're going to find out, no, they weren't. And nobody told them. And that is what a preacher's got to do. He has got to tell the people everything. And it, 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 it's one of those things. I learned uh, uh, fairly early on uh, when I started preaching full time, don't make any assumptions. You know, don't, don't just think you know what's going on or think what people know or think what they don't know. Because I, I thought one time I was going to do a, a, a series on basics, the absolute most basic stuff that, that you, could, you could ask for. And the reason I wanted to do that is because when I became a Christian and I started asking Christians about some of the details, you know, well, why do we do this instead of that? Or why do we not do that? And uh, a lot of them would say, well, because uh, that's what the Bible says. Where? I don't know. It's in there somewhere. Are you sure? Well, yeah, I think so. Or, well, that's just the way we've always done it. Why? Because we always have. Why? They didn't know. And it, it, was, it was kind of a shock to me that there were that many people. Some of them had been Christians for 30, 40 years, and they didn't know. So I thought, well, it would be a good thing to do some basic stuff. And every time I did something like that, somebody would come and they would say, you know, I have never heard that before. Wait a second, you've never heard that before? No, I've never heard that before. How long have you been a Christian? 30 years. And you've never heard that before. It was, a, it was kind of a surprise to me. But you don't, you don't need to assume that people know things because they may not. 
Sometimes it's their fault, sometimes it's not. Sometimes they just hadn't been taught. But still, when, when you stand before a congregation, you have to tell them everything. And sometimes they won't like it. And then, you know, what I usually do is tell them, well, I didn't like it either. You know, but I needed to hear it, and I figured if somebody, if I did, somebody else probably did too. And I think that's uh, the way most good preachers go at it. You know, yeah, I didn't like to hear it either, but that's the way it is. You know, you don't, you don't uh, try to sugarcoat things. But uh, you'll, you'll have a lot of people that will tell you, you know, a preacher ought to do this or, or that. He ought to be this or that. He ought to speak this way or that way. And there's nothing in, in Scripture, as far as I am aware, that tells you, you know, just how you have to go about these things. But it does say you need to preach the whole gospel of God. One of my absolute favorite uh, passages in the Bible when it comes to uh, preachers and the work that preachers are supposed to do is found over in Nehemiah chapter 8. In Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and many of the Jews that have come back uh, from captivity are there, and they're, they're beginning to rebuild Jerusalem. They're beginning uh, to reestablish worship and things like that. They're trying to do what God wants them to do. And in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8, it says, So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. That, in a nutshell, is what preachers are supposed to do. You read from the book, from the law of God, and you give the sense. You help people to understand. And it's one of those things, sometimes people, people have an easier time uh, understanding a, uh, uh, an illustration that one person gives rather than somebody else's. It's just kind of the way you, you approach things. You know, there are times when I've had the same thing. You know, somebody tells me something, and I, I, I don't get that. And somebody else can say, well, it's like this. Oh, okay, yeah, that I get. Marcia did that to me one time. I got in an argument with a guy about something, and I do not even remember now what it was. But he was on one side, and I was on the other side, and it was a biblical subject, and we argued it. We were both absolutely sure we were right. And we were arguing it, and it got kind of hot. It didn't ever get really mean, but it did get a little warm under the collar. And I came home, and I fussed. I do that a lot. And I fussed and fussed and fussed. This guy just does not know what he's talking about. How come he can't see this, and how come he can't say that? And Marcia said, well, did he say this? And I'm, no. Why didn't he say that? If he had, I'd have shut up. And I had to go back the next time and say, yeah, you were right. And it was worth it then because it was a shock. Uh, he did not expect that, but I got him back later. But sometimes you, get a, you, you, you can get an explanation from somebody else that you can't get from, from uh, one that you've heard before. You know, different, different approaches, uh, different styles of speaking, all of those things. There's nothing wrong with those as long as you don't just get up and, you know, do a uh, self-help book and, you know, read uh, from the latest one, uh, Carnegie's uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, uh, you know, that kind of thing, tell stories all day long. You know, you've got to preach the word. And one of the problems is oftentimes that uh, you preach the word 
and people don't like it. And, and that's okay if they'll think about it. You know, yes, I don't like what he said, but I'm going to go think about it, and I'm going to try to find something to prove him wrong. That, there's no problem with that at all. You know, if you're going to go into Scripture and you're going to find something that proves that I'm wrong about something, good, do it. Because if I'm wrong, I want to know I'm wrong. But a lot of times, if you're going in there to try to prove that somebody else is wrong, you'll find out they're right. And if you're honest, when you're going through there trying to find it, you'll say, okay, I, I have to admit I was wrong. But so many times, in Galatians chapter 4, and verse 16, the Apostle Paul said, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Preachers don't preach like that. They don't, they don't step on people's toes because they like to do it. They don't. If they're any good, they don't. But they do it because they love you and they want you to change whatever bad habit it is that you've got. And that's what preaching is all about. It may be that there's someone here this evening that's not a Christian. If that be the case, you could come forward confessing your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, and you could be baptized, have your sins washed away. Or maybe you're an erring child of God. You've done something that separated you from God. Well, it's time to come back. You can go to God in prayer, confess your sin to him from a repentant heart, and ask him to forgive you, and he's promised to do that. Or it may be that you just need to come forward and ask for the prayers of those that are gathered here for some other reason. Whatever your need is, would you come forward and make it known while together we stand and sing?